Hello, Canucks fans, and welcome into episode 79 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. Doug, how uh, warm is your neck of the woods right now? Because uh, it, it's getting warm here in the West End, but it's about to get a whole lot warmer. Well, I've definitely mentioned this in previous episodes, but like we usually record between 5 and 6, and that is the worst time for heat in my apartment. It's just the sun just starts beaming in it beaming in uh through our front window and through the patio uh we did a big deck cleaning of our patio a couple weeks back or i should say grace did a big deck cleaning of the patio a couple weeks back um, you sat out there with a beer no i was uh, i was at work <laughs> but, uh, uh but even like yeah you like you want to go out and enjoy the sun but there's just like a two and a half three hour period where it's just like it's just too hot like you literally fry uh, I like putting you on the hot seat. Is, is that is that what you're saying? Hey, you get the best out of me. At least that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> well, we got a fun episode this week. We're going to be joined by Bill Juan, who's got his fingers all over the Canucks community. So looking forward to that chat. Um, and we got a, we'll talk a little bit more as well about the uh, two series left and what's going on with those. But just started over here as well the uh, islanders lightning game so that's going to be going on in the background game six you know i'm hoping for the islanders to make this one seven in a loud nassau coliseum considering how bad the game the previous game went for the islanders they have to play better tonight no matter what right there's no way they're losing eight nothing again uh to tampa i sure hope so the, the vegas odds on that would be something else i mean geez like whoever put a big bet on Tampa Bay winning by like five plus uh, they would have done pretty well with that because I don't think anyone saw that coming but anyways we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit here first off our Twitter plugs if you don't know you can follow me on Twitter at Pete underscore gas and you can follow this podcast on Twitter at Canucks speak I see we just hit exactly 400 followers so thank you very much for that uh, give me a follow on Twitter at Doug then and Pete and I continue to build this ever-growing playlist on Spotify. It's the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. Every outro segment of an episode, we have a little song playing in the background, and then we add that song to the Spotify playlist. So check that out, the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. So before we get into what is happening on the ice, I just wanted to mention quickly something that happened off the ice involving a former Canuck and Tom Curvers, who passed away at 58 years. Just wanted to send our condolences to his family. Tom only played one season with the Canucks, but for a blue liner, putting up 27 points in 32 games, that's not to be taken lightly. He put up some good years offensively, also played for the Habs, Sabres, Devils, Leafs, Islanders, and Ducks. So he was around. Uh, Tom, all the best from here on out, and all the best to your family as well. And just uh, wanted to mention it, he's only played 32 games with the team and six in the playoffs, but he is still a Canucks alumni. Yeah, uh, you know, rest in peace, Tom Curvers, condolences to his family, and fuck cancer. Indeed, indeed. I think uh, everyone I know and myself as well has, has lost someone to cancer. So, yeah, fuck cancer. That's a, that's a good way to start off this episode. Um, one of Tom Curvers, well, two of Tom Curvers' former teams, I guess, are both left in the playoffs, and that's the Habs and the Islanders. So we started talking a little bit about the Islanders and how they got absolutely blown out by the Lightning. The Lightning look like they're coming into form 
Vasilevsky looks unreal. Uh, Stamkos is firing. But what's really impressed me the most, and I think a lot of people, I don't think I'm on, by any means on my own with this, is Braden Point and what he's doing. Goals in eight straight playoff games. That is the second longest in NHL history now behind Reggie Leach. Yeah, I mean, Braden Point could have won the Conn Smythe Trophy in Tampa's run to a Stanley Cup championship last year. Um, obviously, it, it ultimately went to Victor Hedman, which is who I thought should have won it. Um, it was Hedman that won the Consmith last year, wasn't it? I'm yes. fairly certain of that. Braden Point is incredible. Like I, I, I know heading into that draft, it was the 2014 or 2013 draft, I believe it was. I know there was a lot of people saying that you know they thought Braden Point could be a really good second round pick and maybe a late first round pick. He ended up sliding all the way to the third round. And I mean, if you were to do a redraft of that draft, I don't have all the names in front of me. I believe that was the Austin Matthews draft, if I am correct. It's the Aaron Ekblad draft. But uh, if you look at it, yeah, he was a third rounder uh, in any sort of redraft. He's probably top five now. I mean, it would be hard. It would be hard not to. I mean, top three, maybe even. I mean, the Canucks took Nikita Tramkin 13 spots ahead of him. And I mean, by no means are, are you know, is that the only miss in front? But uh, he fell all the way down to there. And this is a guy who put up massive numbers as well with Moose Jaw. I mean, he had three straight 85 plus point seasons with Moose Jaw, including a couple of years after he was drafted. So uh, it's he's he was a good player. But, you know, WHL stats, you you see a lot of guys put up these numbers and never go on. And what he's done is also evolved into this incredible two-way player. But, yeah, I mean, just a quick glance at that draft, top five or top three in a redraft. And that was a third-round pick. Yeah, I think he's top three for sure. Um, Isn't the WHL in general the lowest scoring of the three CHL leagues of the OHL, QMJHL, and the WHL? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, the Q always seems to be more offensively minded, and the dub is more known for its physicality and defensemen. Like, the dub is generally a, a, a good place for, for defensemen and wingers, and you don't necessarily get centers who do that year after year because it is a rougher league. I mean, uh, the OHL generally has more scorers as well, but, yeah, the dub I would always classify as being more for defensemen uh, not strictly for defensemen but that's that's where if if you were to if you, you think to, of like, guys like Shea Weber yeah I mean you look at Joel geez really anything out of Kelowna and Kamloops those yeah. guys have just pumped out tons out of those two organizations right there I mean the Canucks have Jet Wu in their system who's also a product of Alex Edler HL yeah and I always I always joke as well and they got Victor Pearson now going over as well to, yeah. to play in Kamloops uh, this year so I, I always joke that if you were to put together a Canada junior team you take the goalies from the Q the defensemen from the dub and the forwards from the O <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, that's probably how some of these team candidates at the World Juniors have been constructed in previous years. But yeah, going back to Brayden Point, uh, it, it's pretty impressive the numbers that you said consistently he was scoring the WHL uh, for those, what, two, three years leading into his draft. And I believe he played another year in junior after he was drafted as well, if not two. Um, played without, two after. There you go. Uh yeah, I mean, I know people could say, oh, and you mentioned it, oh, the Canucks missed, you know, they took Trampkin 13 or 12 spots before. It's like, well, guess what? Every team missed on Braden Point multiple times in that draft, not just the Canucks. 
Yeah, the Canucks had three shots uh, before that. They end up with Vertanen, Demko, and Trampkin. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, most teams had three shots. Interesting as well, like uh, Braden Point, uh, his last year in the dub, he put up 88 points in 48 games. Like, he just kept getting better and had 16 more points in 10 playoff games. And I remember uh, in my hockey pool, we, we have to take rookies, and uh, Braden Point was one of my rookies, and he put up 40 points in his rookie year in 68 games, which is not to be slouched at but he's just his numbers every year have been super consistent i mean last year in the playoffs 33 points in 23 games and this year 18 points in 16 games in this modern era to have a player who for his career is over a point a game in the playoffs is unreal 68 points in 60 games uh, that's impressive and 35 goals so he's averaging over half a goal a game uh, unreal Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't look into his playoff stats that closely, but I mean, that is up there with the elite of the elite, right? He's one yeah. of those guys, too, that I think one of the things at that time, and we're seeing it becoming an issue less and less in recent years, but the narrative of he's a small guy, right? He's a small player. Mm-hmm. But we've seen guys like Martin St. Louis and Theron Fleury, Patrick Kane, you know, all these Hughes. There you go. Quinn Hughes, all these guys that were smaller players making more and more of an impact in today's game, today's NHL. I mean, Johnny Goudreau is another guy that comes to mind. And I do wonder if some of these old hockey men, you know, didn't have it in their head that, oh, we need to draft size over skill. uh, If Braden Point would have been a late first, early second round pick in that 2014 draft. Well, 2014 was maybe just. A, a year or two before the, that shift really started to happen. I feel like it's been in the last five years where speed has really taken over. And I certainly, uh, you know, I, I come from that old school mindset a bit as well, where you're drafting a defenseman, he's got to be 6'4", 220, and he's got to be physical. And, and the, those days are gone. You've got the new wave of Hughes and McCars and Heiskanen's on the blue line as well. It's, it's, the game has changed. Yeah, like those big physical defensemen are ideal when you're playing NHL you know what I mean? You want yeah, that NHL big 94. Bru- exactly. You want that big yeah, bruising yeah. defenseman. But I agree with you. You know, in today's game, you need a, a guy that can skate and has yeah. good hockey IQ. To me, those are the two things that are a lot harder to teach later on in someone's career, right? If, if, if you don't have the skating down at, you know, 17, 18, it's a skill that you can work on and you can get better at, a la Bo Horvat, a la the Sedins who we'll be talking about a little bit later in this episode. But generally speaking, if you haven't had that elite skating skill by the time you're getting drafted, there isn't much room for you to improve on it. And obviously, Hockey IQ, Braden Point has it in spades. And to me, that's what some of the most elite players in the league today have. It's that high, high Hockey IQ. You see it with Petey. Yeah, and if you're a good skater, by the time you get drafted and come out of junior, you're not thinking about your skating. You're able to work on all the fundamentals of the game, and that's uh, that's something else, right? Instead of taking your time at practice to work on your stride and your off-season to do skating coaches, you're able to work on different fundamentals. And like you said, it's things that can be taught and things that you can learn, but it does give you a, a running or a skating head start on a lot of the the competition um before we get bill we got also talk about what's going on in the other series here because montreal is now up three to two on vegas and vegas looks all out of sorts right now in my opinion i mean 
it, it's not like any one part of their their game is is truly lacking except for their offense it is completely dried up and they look like a one-line team right now that isn't producing yeah i believe the canadians have killed 26 straight penalties um, I think some of that might date back to the previous series against the Jets, but they've killed, I believe, 26 straight penalties. I think, unfortunately, with the Canadiens-Knights series, the two biggest topics are Peter DeBoer and some of his choices in net, and obviously the officiating. Those seem to be taking the majority of the headlines in this series, which is unfortunate because there's been some really good hockey being played on both sides. Yeah, and I mean, some of the Montreal guys, like I think Nick Suzuki's being great. Cole Caulfield continues to do well. Uh, Kasperi Kotkaniemi is is continuing to play well. Uh, it's they're they're getting a lot of contributions. I think Joel Edmondson on the back end, Carey uh, Price, and of course, Carey Price. Yeah, man, BC boy as well. I, a lot of shout outs to Montreal. Uh, Philip to know what he's doing as well. I think there's a. It's a complete team effort from Montreal. Bloodied up Corey Perry. That's that's giving you some images that you're going to see on Hockey Night intros for the rest of our lives <laughs> as well. Um, as for the officiating, though, it, it's... Man, I mean, how, how often have I been calling out officiating? And this is really putting it on a big stage now. It's like, it, it's the inconsistency from game to game as to what is a penalty. And yeah... I, you know, I hear some of the post-game interviews where some players are pissed and others like, well, they called it the same way the whole game. But as a fan, it's it's just just absolutely infuriating. And again, as betting comes into the game more and more, this is something that the league has no choice but to tighten up and create more consistency with. I mean, you can't be betting on games when there's things like a makeup call in that, right? Like, how does Vegas give you, like, betting lines when uh, a team's had three penalties in a row, right? It's like, bet on the next penalty. It's like, well, it's going to be the other guys, right? Or bet on a penalty in the last five minutes. It's like, well, that's not going to be one. And I've just been saying for years, there's got to be more consistency with the officiating, not just within the game, but game to game as well. Look, I agree with you. The officiating definitely needs to be better and more consistent in this series between the Habs and the Golden Knights. But officiating across the board, in essentially every major sport has issues, right? You see it in football with the pass interference calls that are called, aren't called. Uh, the roughing the passer penalties that you get called in football as well, where it's a clean hit, but because he maybe put a little extra on it, and the quarterback was the one taking the hit, it's a penalty. But if it was a running back getting steamrolled by a linebacker, hey, you know what? Fair call. The running back, you know, lost a yard or two on that play. We see it in baseball with the strike zone. Um, so officiating is tough. I, I I know what you mean, but I do think it's it's a problem across all the major sports at the moment. And it's just the human error, right? That you miss things. Uh, But especially in this series between the Habs and the Golden Knights, it's been really, really, really bad and extremely inconsistent. Um, I don't know. The other thing too, is it's the same uh, refing, I guess, tandem group that's been refing all this entire series because they can't really have any, you know, well, at least I think the game's in Montreal because they can't have refs coming and going across the border, right? I know mm-hmm. the Canadian government lifted some of the restrictions, so 
they could play games in Montreal once they got to this round of the playoffs, but even still, they're still limiting who's coming and going, and they don't want different refs coming for different games. So I get that they want a little bit more consistency because they know this ref, this refing group has passed the protocol or whatnot. Have, but yeah, it's just it is very frustrating. I know as Canucks fans, we've seen inconsistencies in the refing in the playoffs. I hearken back, and I hate to sound like a broken record, but the Aaron Rome hit in the 2011 final. Oh. Everyone out there knows uh, where, where we're going with that one. I mean, yeah. we all know 20, 2011 was brutal. Well, I, I mean, we don't even, most of us don't even mention what happened to Mason Raymond as well. The guy yeah. literally had his back broken um, yeah. and you, nothing, nothing. So it does need to be better. I don't know if there needs to be like a summit, you know what I mean? An officiating summit where they pull all the hockey minds together, former players, former refs and just try to come up with like league officials and have some sort of like mandate because here's the problem cross-checking is legal up to a certain point right I mean you see players all the time using the cross-checking motion to push a player out from the front of the net or to pin them up against the board so one of their teammates can retrieve the puck so like cross-checking is legal up to a point when is it not legal when you're smashing someone in the face you know, when you're smashing them in the back and they collapse, you know, to the ice, that's when obviously there's a, it'll be called most of the time as a penalty. So I think that's where there's a little inconsistency. It's like cross-checking is a legal act in hockey up to a certain point. Well, there's always a, a bit of give and take, right? It's just though some of the stuff we've seen in this series, uh, it's just like they put the whistles away. And then we know how that happens. The game gets chippier and chippier and then there's rough stuff and then there's fights and it's it's just not it's not good officiating when it gets to that point when I feel like the refs are losing control of the games by putting the whistles away and then they'll just call a soft penalty somewhere which makes no sense and that's really like if you're letting something go you got to let it go for the rest of the game and that's that's that sets the the boundaries for the game but they're doubling back and they're and they're not doing that but um but anyways we could we could spend a whole episode just going on about the officiating i also think this has to come from the general managers meetings and you also have a competition committee so until either of those groups say things and you can kind of get some of the old hockey minds in the room either outnumbered or to sway them i I don't think a lot is really going to change but I went around after, I guess, I think it was the game four in that Habs in Vegas series. And I went around, looked at a bunch of different sporting sites and different networks. And I wanted to see if the officiating was a story outside of Canada in the hockey night market. And it was. It was all the networks, all the articles I was reading, it was officiating. So it's a bad look for the NHL. I think they should realize that. I hope they do. And it's something that a couple of tweaks, a couple of adjustments, I think could solve a lot of problems here. Should we grab Bill here and get into all things Canucks? Let's do it. All right. And joining us, our guest for the week, it's Bill Juan. And you can follow him on Twitter at Bill underscore Juan. He's also a contributor for Canucks Army, Point Shot Hockey, and Pounding the Rock for all your NBA needs as well. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, boys. It's it's a beautiful day out, so it's it's nice to talk some Canucks. It's always well, I shouldn't say yep. it's always nice to <laughs> talk some Canucks, eh? especially in this market. There, there's definitely some ups and downs, but we're gonna start it off right away with what I think is a, is a pretty positive up. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of or any Canucks fans really who 
think this is a bad move in bringing Henrik and Daniel in to work with the club in an advisory role with, with Jim Benning, something I've been saying for a long time, they need more voices. They've got two of the brightest minds, maybe the two brightest minds who've ever played for the organization in there. So that's quite the lead up I'm giving to you, Bill. What do you think about it? You know, to be honest, when I first heard the news, like not today, but when I was like first rumored and stuff just a couple of weeks ago, I was a bit skeptical because I was worried that they were just going to be coming in as purely like a PR move because back then I think everything was going to crap with, with all the bending news and that kind of stuff. But after thinking about it for a bit, these guys are two of the most intelligent, you know, the best people that their organization has ever seen. Right. So they would never actually just accept their role without knowing that they are actually going to play a vital important kind of role with the team so it's definitely not just going to be like a PR kind of thing just to cover up with the team's mistakes so I do like what what um, the team's going for but I don't think that fans should expect them to talk every day or see them often with the team it's more of going to be like a background kind of thing but yeah I I do like it hey Bill uh, Doug here thanks again for joining Pete and I on the speakeasy um yeah, I, I agree with most of the sentiments that you said about how initially I had a little bit of skepticism about the potential of the Canucks hiring the Sedins, both of them, especially after what we saw the fallout with Linden and how, you know, it kind of tarnished his name with the team and a little bit of his legacy with the Canucks. I do have a couple of, again, maybe I'm playing devil's advocate here, but like I do have a couple of concerns about this situation is again, the Sedins have always done everything together. And here we are again, they're doing this together, right? I mean, do you see a world where you can have co-GMs or, you know, co-presidents? Would one of them be the GM? Would one of them be the president? That's a good question. And I've thought about that uh, as well. The first thing would be that we're not quite sure what they want to do just yet outside of their current roles. And I don't think they know either. I think today that, they said they're not quite sure what path they're going to be taking in the future. But if they do go down like the GM route, I'd say maybe like one of them gets like the title of GM and then the other one gets a title of assistant GM or something like that. But in reality, they might be working in tandem just with different legislative titles and that kind of thing. So I feel like it's, it's possible to work together, but it, it just depends on what direction they want to go in. So, yeah. Wouldn't it in a way for a team that once well, recently made a goalie a captain wouldn't be the most Canucks thing to have co-twin GMs? Like, doesn't it in a weird way, it kind of almost fits this brand? It does sound like the most Canuck thing to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We say that about a lot of things. And I mean, I don't know <laughs> if you guys caught the the presser today. Um, I thought it was really good. I, I thought Daniel and Henrik, as usual, very articulate. The answers were they were quick. They'd obviously thought about them. Uh, they're obviously very plugged into what this fan base wants and and what we're craving and and how we're, you know, management is not really looked upon very favorably in the city right now. And and so I think the initial thoughts of it being a, a PR move, I, I, I got to say there's a part of me that thought that too. But after seeing the conference today and how humble they were and saying, hey, we're here to learn, we want to learn the roles, we're going to be involved with Abbotsford, we're going to be involved in a lot of different things. I, you know, I do feel a lot better about it. And 
I mean, this is something that I, I mean, I think you guys probably agree the, the team right now, we need more voices, right? Like, I mean, going into another season, just having Jim and John there with no buffer to the Aquilinis. I mean, that doesn't really feel like enough of a change to go along with all the coaching changes. Does it? No. Yeah. I, I think the Sedins are going to play a bit of like a buffer role, like you said, both between management and the owner, and also maybe more importantly, between management and the players, right? Because one of the things that lots of departed players like Tanev, like Tafoli mentioned last year is that there was no communication whatsoever. They weren't offered contracts or didn't hear back from Benning himself. So I think that the sittings are going to be they might not have a specific role in management that says, oh, they're going to be involved in trades or uh, salary cap management, that kind of thing. But they're probably just going to be there to bridge the gap between management and the players to foster a better team environment, if that makes sense. So that's what I'm going to be expecting, at least from the, from the start. I think another aspect to consider is, better communication between management and the fans, because I think that's one thing that a lot of fans in this market have really been frustrated with Jim Benning is he often contradicts himself to the media when he speaks publicly. And I think having a more concise, thoughtful, and again, I don't like to dunk on Benning all the time. I do want to give the guy his props for drafting guys like Hughes and Petey and Demko and Besser. Like he has put together this core you know, I know some people want to give all the credit to Judd Brackett, but he obviously played a hand in it as well. Um, but he's always, in my opinion, been a poor communicator. And obviously we heard it from former players last year, but fans as well. We've just never felt like he's been able to articulate a proper plan moving forward. And he keeps moving the goalpost, right? First, it was like, I could see us being competitive in a year. Now it's two years. It's like, well, you know, what is it, right? Let, let's have a plan and stick to that plan. I know COVID happened. I know the flat cap happened, but again, you know, you got to stick to your guns and stick to the plan. And I think that is something that this fan base has really been hungering for is to have someone who can stand up in front of the media, talk directly, look directly at the fans in the camera and say, Hey, this is our plan. Here's what we want to do moving forward. Here's how we are going to try to execute said plan. I mean, we, we've said this before, but one of Benning's biggest weaknesses is that he's not a good public speaker. And, and that compounds a lot of the frustrations, I think, in, the, in this market as well. So what you guys are saying is like the Sedins being a bit of a buffer. I, I don't think the Sedins are going to, well, I know they wouldn't be walking in here unless they felt that they could make a difference. And these guys are competitors. They want to be a part of something. They want to have a voice. They're not going to be in there just like, plucking things into cap friendly and seeing, seeing what they can do with, with right shot D this off season. I mean, they want to learn. And these guys, like, I, I think once they figure out the ropes, their, their role could evolve. I mean, we all compared to the Sackick and Iserman. I mean, why not? And there's, there's two of them. That's uh, Hey, if, if it, they're co everything and they're getting the job done, uh, I'm okay with that. So you're telling me, Pete, all the cap friendly stuff I've been doing for the last two months means I'm never going to get a shot at being an NHL GM. But you might be able to draft the Seattle expansion team if you're using it <laughs> like I am right now. There's a reason it's called armchair GM, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Couch GM in mind. Um, so also with with the Sedins, they're going to be hands on more in Abbotsford. Do you guys think that if the team was still in Utica, that this role would have become available in the capacity that it is? I think that's a good question. And I haven't thought about that too much. I'm not sure if it would have persuaded them not to take the role, 
But I do feel confident in saying that the team being in Abbotsford or moving to Abbotsford probably accelerated this in a sense that they would be closer to home, obviously, and there, there wouldn't be as much travel involved. So I feel like they would have ended up in this role regardless eventually, but this probably just moved that up a couple, maybe months, maybe even years. So yeah, that's just how I see it. And Bill, what do you think? Like there's, there's a, t- there's a ton of pros in my opinion to moving the team to Abbotsford. What for you, like really kind of stands out like, when you say, Hey, we have the, the Canucks farm team down in the Fraser Valley. Now, what to you is really going to be the most beneficial for this team? Well, the obvious one would just be to travel, right? Like you don't have to take, how, how long was the flight from, from Utica to Vancouver? Well, there was no direct ones. Crazy. It's like, it's like five and a half to Toronto and then another hour to Utica. It's, it's right. a long ways to go. It's like most of the time the players might, if, if they were going to play on the same day, they, they would have been exhausted. Right. And that obviously would have affected their on ice performance, but being in Abbotsford, it just lets them, I mean, how long does it take to get from Abbotsford to, to here just like a few hours maybe uh, it depends on the traffic maybe as long as yeah, exactly. Utica. <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully not but uh it's obviously gonna be a, be a lot more convenient and then to be honest i'm not too sure about the salary cap implications but i'm pretty sure that if you move players within the organization on like the same day and stuff it, it helps alleviate some cap flexibility as well uh just Correct me if I'm wrong, of course, guys. No, I, I know that Toronto uh, and I think Vegas have both been doing that a bit the last right. couple of years. Yeah, so so I think travel is the most important thing and just letting your guys be able to move back and forth between the teams without, without having to go through like 10-hour flights, of course. Um, I think the one, if there is a con or a negative to this would maybe be there would be more attention on the Abbotsford team. And if something goes south, then obviously things could just start spiraling in a negative sense. So I guess that's probably the one bad thing. But even with that, there's lots more upside to this. So can't complain, you know? Yeah, I I agree. Like, it's a win-win. There are a couple of things I worry about as well. I know one of the things that a lot of people were saying in Utica, because there were so many other AHL teams in close proximity, you travel was a lot less, right? Like them playing in Abbotsford, they're going to be flying to California to be playing all the California teams where in Utica, they would be getting on the bus driving to all the other places in New York state or Buffalo that they would have to be playing. Uh, So they definitely did have, they would in theory have a little bit more uh, practice time because of that. I do think having, the team in Abbotsford, it allows management to have more eyes on what's happening in the team, how players are developing. I remember when I think it was John Tortorella was the coach for that one year in Vancouver. And I think green was the coach down there. Apparently only him and green talked once that entire year, the entire year torts apparently reached out one time to ask about a player. That was it where you think your AHL coach and your NHL coach should be kind of talking if not on a weekly basis, let's hope a bi-weekly basis just to kind of say, hey, this player is actually playing really well for us at the moment. You know what I mean? I think they deserve a call up. And to not have that communication and to not have eyes on the team because they're halfway across the continent, I think this will definitely be a, a benefit for the Canucks organization as a whole. And I also think for the development of some of these prospects. One thing with the the travel as well, though, that is is definitely a positive is you now have your farm team 
not only close to you, but in the same time zone. I mean, it's a three hour time zone difference to Utica. And, you, and we all know that when the teams go on, on the East Coast road trip, right? Or when you see those East Coast teams come and you get them at the end of a West Coast road trip. And, you're, you know, it doesn't matter how good the team is. If they've been in the Pacific time zone for a couple of weeks and hopping around and doing longer travel distances in the West as well, it tires them out. So I think being in the same time zone, if you need to call up a guy like that, there's no jet lag. Uh, it's, a, it's a little thing, but this is also, again, a team that has hired sleep doctors in the past so i think it i think it, that is important it's for someone who you know in the ago times i used to travel a lot myself um i think another thing with utica is well i sorry i guess abbotsford now is in it, it's is how the fans in the in this area look at it like are, are we going to continue to look at it as a development team or are we actually going to look at it as a franchise that we want to be successful and compete for the Calder cup right and that may put a little bit more of an onus on the team to strengthen the product in Utica as well. Maybe bring in some more of these depth guys as well. You know, guys like uh, Justin Bailey who came in uh, and, and, and other guys to kind of round out the team a bit more and which, which I think is a good thing personally is, is just overall strengthen the product. That's a good point. And I, I actually didn't even think about that, but it does put more pressure and I feel like it, it's more good pressure in a sense where you're, you have an expectation to compete because you're so close to such a uh, big hockey market in Vancouver. Right. And it just lets other fans maybe who, who can't make it to Vancouver, get a chance to watch a team in Abbotsford play. And at the same time, it kind of cultivates a better environment and culture when you're trying to win at all different levels and not just the NHL. So I do like that. It, it puts more onus on the Abbotsford team to compete for the Calder Cup. And that, again, just makes a better environment. And then when the guys get, get called up to the Canucks, then they could bring their own pot positivity to the team. So I do like that as well. Yeah, I mean, I do think you can still be developing good young prospects and still compete for the Calder Cup year in, year out. Obviously, if a player is playing really, really well, you expect them to eventually get a call up to the big club. But we saw when Green was coaching, I believe it was still Utica, and uh, Markstrom was on the team. That was the year I think Benning actually got Markstrom uh, on waivers down to Utica. I mean, one of his better shrewder moves, if you think about it. Um, you know, they went to, I believe, a Calder Cup final that year. No, Demko, I believe, was the goalie, actually, wasn't he, when they went on a run? I know they went to a Calder Cup final, I believe. Can't remember how many years ago, and I'm almost positive Travis Green was the coach. Everything before March last year is blurred together for me, so <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Fair enough, pre, fair pre enough. COVID and post-COVID, right? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. It's like uh, AD and BC, right? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I do think that you can have success and still develop players. And one of the things I think in Utica, and I think it's a fair criticism, is we didn't really see a lot of development of Canucks prospects over the years. I mean, outside of maybe Demko, who did cut his teeth in Utica, and you could say Markstrom to a certain degree, all of the high-end Canucks prospects have made the jump directly to the NHL. Uh, I mean, obviously, PD, you got Hughes, you got Besser. Pod Coles in this year looks like he's going to be a shoe-in to make the club. Hoglander last year is another guy. Um, outside of those guys, I, I, it's really hard to see who of a young forward or defenseman, the, the Utica or the AHL club, I'll say, has really helped develop in the last six, seven years. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's fair. Eh? We've seen a few guys like Cole Lind, obviously, at his cup of coffee. And, you know, I know a lot of us haven't given him rave reviews yet, but they're, it, that traditional model for forwards, like let's call it the, the Detroit model in a lot of ways, uh, Vancouver's never really done. Now, you know, granted, Vancouver's done a couple of things, though, as well, that not a lot of other teams do as much. Vancouver has certainly gone the NCAA route a lot more. And so you're getting guys who come out of NCAA. They've already, they're, they're older than than a lot of guys already and they're able to make that jump over the HL in a lot of cases not not always uh, and they've also gone the Europe route quite a bit as well and and we've even seen over the last couple of years Canucks prospects I mean Lucas Yasek is the most recent one and Petrus Palmu before that we've seen guys hop back over to Europe out of the AHL so it's definitely a, a different way they've run it. And I'm just, I guess I'm just more wondering if, if there's going to be change now that there are more eyes on them and more rabid, passionate Canucks fans eyes on them, especially in the Fraser Valley. Yeah. I think you guys both make pretty good points, especially the one about how we haven't seen many prospects develop quite well in Utica. I think just having the team closer to Vancouver obviously holds them more accountable and the management group in Vancouver is able to have a better grasp of what's going on in Abbotsford. I think the only guy, I mean, like if we th- think back, the first guy I thought of in Utica was Jonathan Dolan. <laughs> I was just like kind of misfiring there for a sec, but I mean, <laughs> like what, what happened to that guy? You know, like, like he, he was supposed to be the next big thing. And I know that every fan base overrates their prospects, but there was obviously some form of communication, miscommunication between him and the Comets. And then that obviously led to him being traded to San Jose. And it sounds like he might still give it a shot at the NHL level. And he, he's obviously responsible for a lot of that as well. But I think we can all safely say that the Comets didn't do as good a job as they might've, they should have in developing him as well. So a couple other forwards uh, in that same vein that always come to mind uh, as long with Jonathan Dolan, I always think of uh, Jared McCann and more recently, Adam Gaudet as well. Right. Like I, I think there's more pieces to the, all of those stories than we, we know and may, may ever know, but it sounds like there's definitely discontent and guys who are skilled and it, it's, we, I know Doug and I were talking about this earlier with regards to Braden point and about how not every guy who comes out of junior with great numbers is able to make that next leap and transition their game. And, and with that in mind, I want to talk to about some of the guys who are going to make the jump to the Canucks this year. And of course the big one is Vasily Pod Colson and what sort of expectations and what sort of role do you see pods taking this upcoming season? Yeah, that's one of the things that I've talked that nauseam about with, with some other fans, because I feel like, um, not you guys particularly, but I feel I've seen some fans kind of expect too much from him, at least from, from what I believe, because Hoglander maybe put the bar too high and obviously PD and uh, Hughes were just next level. Right. But I think Hog in particular being from the same draft and being a second round pick, whereas Pop Podkosin was the top 10 pick. I think Hoglander exceeded everyone's expectations. I don't think anyone expected him to be, to even make the team before training camp open, much less become a play driving top six forward, right? And lots of fans are thinking along the lines of, well, Hoglander was the second round pick. Podkosin was the ninth overall pick. So Podkosin must be at least 
as good as Hoglander this year, right? But I, I just don't think that's the proper way of looking at things because, again, Hoglander exceeded expectations so far, and it's just unrealistic to think that Podkosen could reach those same heights. I'm not saying he can't, but I feel like it's more realistic to project him as a third-line winger as, as opposed to a top-six talent that Hoglander has established himself as being. So I feel like Podkosen's defensive game is probably more developed in his offensive game and i think that on the offensive side maybe i'd say like 30 points would be what i'd expect whereas like some fans are already projecting him as the long-term winger on like on horvat's wing right and like all, already thinking he's gonna be at least a 40 point guy but I, I just don't think that that's the case i feel like he's gonna be a decent defensive player and then on and then on offense maybe 10 15 goals 30 points, maybe some PP2 time, but that's just how I see it. So, yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think the nice thing about a player like Pod Colson, he doesn't have to play in your top set six to be successful. Where certain guys, because they're elite skilled guys and that's kind of what they bring to the team, if they're not playing in your top six, they're not really NHL caliber players, right? I mean, sure, they can maybe develop their game to adjust but in their rookie season i think that's asking a lot so i do think the one thing that is nice about pod colson is he could play a third line role or maybe even a fourth line role i mean we saw the same kind of trajectory with bo horvat's development where he started off as the fourth line center and he slowly worked his way up and i i, I that's one thing that i am actually really excited to see with Paul with Pod Colson next year is that we might have an actual top nine and we might have depth between the first line and the third line where we haven't really had that we've had literally the first two lines your top six and then literally the depth just falls off a cliff and with a guy like Pod Colson you were mentioning his defensive game one of the things that I think is outstanding is his puck retrieval. He's one of those guys who can just go get the puck if it's along the boards. His puck retrieval skills are through the roof and he might not put up the points like Hoglander did this year, but I definitely think he's going to have an impact on this team and he will be a good uh, a good addition to this young core. The other thing too that I think a lot of Canucks fans are looking at and they might be a little bit nervous is we're seeing how successful Cole Caulfield has been for the Montreal Canadians in these playoffs. So I know there's already a little bit of talk on Canucks Twitter and just in the media in general. Did the Canucks make a mistake by not taking Caulfield? I still think Pod Colson is the player that this team currently needs. Because again, going back to the top six role, Caulfield to me is a guy that needs to play in your top six. And if he's not playing in your top six, it's hard to find a role for him on every day in the NHL, at least in my opinion. I think you guys both make some really good points here. I think uh, the the tempered expectations and and comparing him to Hoglander is they're they're very different players and they they bring a lot of different tools to the Canucks. And like what you were just saying there, Doug, about uh, Pod Colson and the way he plays. I know he's hard along the boards and and he's more physical. And I'm also really curious to see what the analytics community thinks of pod Coles and when he's over here, because he is a guy who has been fairly snake bitten, uh, maybe, maybe more than other players, it seems, or maybe I just watched too many highlights at Faber and, and the guys put out as well. But uh, it, it does feel like he could be an analytics darling. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see what he does there. And, and also putting guys in a, in spots to succeed, like Niels Hoglander wouldn't be able to go in that third or fourth line role or, or a PK two role. But I do feel that pod Coles and 
will have opportunities throughout the lineup. And he could be a guy that Travis Green says, hey, fill, a, fill in a hole, your first unit today or your fourth line the next day. And uh, after the roller coaster that Pod Colson's had over in Russia the last couple of years, I, I don't think that's going to phase him one bit because he'd still be getting ice time. Yeah, I think the analytics side, that the point that you just made is a good one because I do agree that he's probably going to be pretty looked around, looked upon pretty favorably in that side because he's good defensively. And the one thing about Podkosen is he creates lots of chances, but he's not the greatest finisher. So I think lots of people are going to see him almost in like a Brady Kachuk light. You know how like Brady's always among like the leaders and expected goals, but he never actually finished any of them. So I think Podkosen might be something like that. And the one good thing about that is I feel like finishing is one of those skills that you could probably improve on as your career progresses. I know that his skating isn't the best either. And again, lots of fans have kind of seen skating through some rosy tinted glasses because Bo Horvat improved his skating by so much, but Horvat is an exception. He's not, you know, he's not the norm. Yeah. Yeah. He's not the norm. So I don't think it's, realistic to project pod to be an elite skater but i do think he can finish um become a better finisher for sure i know some uh prospect guys I, I, jd burke is the guy that comes to mind uh a few years ago when the world juniors was in vancouver one of the big things that i think with pod Coles and he's actually a really good playmaker and i remember jd burke during the one of the russian games was saying you know, Pod Colson should have four or five assists in this one game alone if his teammates could actually finish. And I think he's actually going to be more of a playmaker than a goal scorer at the NHL level. And I think if he gets to play with some people who can actually finish and put the puck back in the net, I think he can rack up the points. Uh, but yeah, from what I've heard and what I've read from some of the more educated prospect people than me who just obviously goes on Twitter and maybe, you know, goes to elite prospects or one of those forums, um, I heard that it's it's his playmaking skill that's actually his kind of that's going to be the key to his unlo- unlocking his offensive talent in the NHL. And Pod Colson may not be the only rookie that we have on the team. I, I think Will Lockwood's got a, a good shot, but I think Jack Rathbone, a lot of Canucks fans, I, I've now penciled in as possibly your number two or or number three left side D. Um, Bill, what do you think? Is from what you've seen of Rathbone, is he NHL ready? I think he is an intro ready, but on a third pair role, not, not the top four yet. I think he does have, he probably projects as a number two lefty in the future, but as of like this next season, I think third pair would probably be the spot for him. And that kind of leaves us questioning where your levy will slot in, right? Is he just going to be an everyday number seven guy who plays some minutes and that would be tough because obviously he's, he doesn't have much trade value and, and his value is more, he, he's more valuable to the Canucks than he would be on a trade market. But then at the same time, he's not going to carve out an everyday role with the Canucks if Rathbone does take that third leftist slot. So I think it's, it's more an indictment against Yolevi more than anything. But Rathbone, I, I do see him as a everyday third pair guy and, potentially a top four player in the future as well. Looking at the Canucks current 
constructed roster on the back end, who would be your ideal defensive partner for Rathbone heading into next season? I know a lot of people are like, as long as he's not playing with Myers, I don't care. Keep him as far away from Myers as possible. But for you, Bill, who would be your ideal partner for Rathbone next year? That's a good question. And the first thing that popped into my mind was Hamnick because he's more of like a steadying presence, but then who's going to play with Hughes, right? That's the issue with the team right now. It's, it's that we don't have enough pieces on the back end or anywhere, really, to be honest with you. We don't have many pieces up front as well, like outside of the big four players, right? So I feel like the perfect scenario would be to have Rathbone paired up with Hamnick on a third pair. I think that'd be a decent third pair. But then you have what's left for the top four. You got Hughes on your first pair, right? Schmidt would be either second lefty or second righty but then Myers would be you don't want Myers playing first pair minutes right so so the issue with the team is that they just don't have any enough pieces but in a perfect world then I I think Hamnick would be a good partner for Rathbone I, I I'm not a Tyler Myers defender. I, I'm certainly I've I've experienced the roller coaster like a lot of us have. But I will say that down the stretch, I thought last year Tyler Myers was a lot better than I think a lot of people give him credit for. However, you guys are right; he's not a top pairing. Like Tyler Myers on a on a good team is like your ideal number four defenseman, your number two right side, number three right side. Like he's he's not a six million dollar top man defenseman, which is I think maybe what some in the Canucks thought that when they got him, that was what he was going to be, but he's not quite there and he won't be there. So I got kind of a two-part question uh, for you and, and, and Bill, you can start this one off is, is do you think Travis Hamannick's back and are there any right side D out there that you can think of that the Canucks should target before Seattle? I do think Hamannick will be back, but my confidence has wavered a bit uh just due to like the most recent reports that he's listening to other offers before those came out i thought that it was just a given that he'd be back on on a short-term deal that pays maybe like two million a year somewhere around that range but now again my confidence has wavered a bit but if if i was to bet on it i i do think he'd still be back because both him and the canucks have said all the right things about liking the fit right and he obviously gets to play some pretty important minutes alongside Hughes. So I, I'd still be quite surprised if he wasn't back next year. And in terms of cheap right-handed defensemen that the team could target, one of the guys that I looked at earlier in the offseason was uh, Zach Bogosian. He's, he's definitely not the sexiest name, but I mean, if you're going with cheap, the, um, the names aren't going to be sexy, right? And Another guy that I, I've seen his name thrown around is Yanni. I I always forget how to pronounce his last name. Is it Hawkenpaw? Oh, yeah, it's a it's a great right? name. I, I always think he's yeah. Hawaiian when I hear that name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think he'd be an intriguing option too. Uh, but the most important thing is the price tag, right? Like if you're able to sign both those guys for just a bit over a million at most, then it's worth a shot. But anything over one point five million definitely would be a no no for me at least. Yeah. I like both those names that you mentioned. I, I agree that I think the likelihood of Hammond coming back to the Canucks is better than not. I think it was just a little bit of grandstanding from his agent to make a comment saying, well, no, we will definitely sign anywhere if the money's right. Um, another name that 
is a former Canuck who scored a goal last game in the, in the playoffs, who I think could be a good cheap alternative, but he might be more of a number seven is a Luke Shen. Uh, I know he played really well with Hughes that rookie year. It was a limited role and a limited amount of games, but I thought he equated himself pretty good. I know he actually stood up for Hughes a couple. I, there was one time where I think someone took a run at Hughes and Shen, um, you know, got into a fight and stood up for him, which was great. He's a guy again, that I think you could get for fairly cheap. I don't know if you can get top six minutes from him game in game out. He might be a guy that you alternate with another name, like you mentioned, Bill and Bogosian. Um, but he would be another guy I would target. He's a right shot defenseman, has a little bit of an edge. He's a little long in the tooth now, but I do think he could bring some value on the right price tag. Do you guys think that there's, I mean, there, there certainly is options, but is there anyone on maybe the trade route for a, a team that has too many defensemen that they could lose to Seattle? I mean, we all know that teams like Minnesota and Tampa in particular could have some issues and maybe Nashville. Like, is there anyone out there via trade that you think the Canucks could extract kind of like they did with Nate Schmidt, but uh, on a cheaper deal? Before Hayden Fleury was moved, that was my target because I, I felt like Carolina was so deep uh, on the back end. So I thought that before Fleury got moved, the team would be prudent to target either Fleury or Jake Bean. But I don't think that's as realistic now since Flurry has been traded and Bean has played a, a pretty not not an insignificant role in the playoffs, right? And and they're still trying to bring it back, Dougie Hamilton as well. Outside of the Hurricanes, I think lots of people have mentioned Colorado and Ryan Graves as a potential target. But the thing with Graves is that we're not even sure if he's gonna be available because who knows, like Colorado could try and entice Vegas. Oh, no, not sorry. Not Vegas, Seattle. <laughs> um, I'm like stuck in 2017 now. We've all uh, done it. We've all done it. Yeah. COVID, yeah, exactly. man. COVID. COVID. Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, yeah. right. Um, but yeah, I, I think Colorado is probably going to try and entice Seattle to take Johnson. So we're not even sure if Graves is going to be available. And even if Graves was available, his contract is fine but but we don't want to take the risk of him declining and maybe he's better than he actually is because he plays on such a powerhouse team so i I think graves would be an intriguing target but not one that i'd be too confident in trying to acquire but i mean do you guys have any targets in mind there's certainly have a few out there. I mean, we, we've now living in a, a, a Groundhog Day world where OEL's name has come uh, back around again. Um, I was going to ask you guys specifically about Matt Dumba, and I know, Doug, you've got a few players you'd like to mention as well. Um, uh, but just before we touch on that, Doug, I just quick thoughts on if the Canucks should target Matt Dumba. Uh, I mean, yeah, if the price is right, but I still think Minnesota is not going to give him away. Um, I think they'll they could still get a decent return on Dumba. Dumba makes too much money. Like I don't know the Canucks are in a position to add a player that's making what Dumba's making this year. So I think that's kind of a roadblock that the Canucks need to overcome. Bill, any thoughts on Dumba? Yeah, just to add on to that, I'm actually working on an article right now um looking at Schmidt and Myers's contracts. And the one thing that's interesting is Everyone talks about the bottom six contract, right? And rightfully so, because you're spending, what, a fifth, a quarter of the team's cap 
on players who might be giving you not just no value, but maybe even negative value, right? That's That just speaks to how incompetent management has been in navigating the cap over the past half decade. But the thing is, Schmidt and Myers are what's actually going to be holding this team back once they are ready to compete because the, the bottom six contracts are going to expire at the end of next season. Right. But I think Schmidt is on the books for another five seasons, if not, if I'm not mistaken, and, and Myers for another four. Right. So, I mean, or, or four and three, sorry. So those are going to significantly impact the team's ability to compete once PD and Hughes are in their primes. And just, Tying that back to Dumba, Dumba is also paid $6 million, which is the same as Schmidt and Myers. Well, Schmidt is like 50000 less or something like that. But um, I, I took a look at on Cap Friendly, and defensemen who are paid $6 million, that's like the top 30 D-men in the league, like in terms of payroll. And if you, if you just like look at it in the, through the lens of number of teams, that basically means you're paying you're going to be paying three guys number one demon money, right? If you do acquire Dumber, because that's three guys being paid $6 million. And then there's about 30 defensemen in the league getting paid that much as well. So like, I know that it's not that simple. You know, you can't just say, oh, because they're a top 30 demon in terms of payroll. That means that they're the, the number one D on their team. But just like in terms of paying three guys, 6 million bucks, and none of them are that quality of defensemen. That's, that's a huge yikes. If, if like a team without, if the team doesn't have the Myers and Schmidt deals, then I feel like Dumbo would maybe be a fit. But with those deals on the books, I, I just don't see it. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Like I said, unless you can move the Schmidt contract while you're acquiring Dumba or move Schmidt for another asset, maybe a winger, and then you acquire Dumba another way. I don't know if the Canucks have the the prospects or the assets to acquire a player like Dumba right now. And I mean, if you're moving Schmidt, well, you're kind of one for one. And I, you would assume Minnesota is trying to clear a defenseman so they don't lose a defenseman at the upcoming expansion draft. A couple of guys that I like that could be young and still potentially help this team. One of them, unfortunately, is a left defenseman is Vince Dunn. I think the Blues are another team that has too many defensemen to have to protect in the upcoming expansion draft. Vince Dunn's name apparently was out there during the regular season as a guy that could be acquired I don't know. Maybe you could trade Schmidt for Dunn. You're getting a guy who's a little bit younger. You're getting out of that big Schmidt contract. Uh, Dunn is RFA at the end of this year. He'll get a raise for sure, but he's probably not going to get the money that Schmidt's currently making. And I would assume St. Louis wants to make another run with their current roster for a Stanley Cup. So maybe adding a guy who's a little bit more seasoned like Schmidt could be something that is beneficial to them. Another guy that I think you could acquire relatively cheap. And I know a lot of people don't like him, And I know a lot of analytics crew don't like him. And I understand why. Um, but I do think a change of scenery could be really good for this guy. And he's a UFA after one year is Ristolainen out of Buffalo. He's a, he, he, he's a UFA at the end of next year. So you, depending obviously cost of acquisition, if you can get him for on the cheap to me, it's a low risk. Maybe he can unlock some of the potential that a lot of us saw when he scored the game winning goal at the world juniors. I believe it was 2016 uh, Finland's first gold medal ever. Oli Ulevi was on that team. Um, I, I'm assuming him and Ulevi are pretty good friends as well. Uh, so that might be good to have a guy come back to maybe help, you know, 
Yulevi out a little bit as far as like an ally in the room. But he's a guy that if I can get him for the right price for one year, see what you got. Maybe that change of scenery can really unlock some of that talent. I would take a shot. That's an interesting target. Yeah. Um, do you know how, how much he's paid right now? 5.4. That's the only 5. problem, 4. right? Is again, uh, it's kind of the same with the Dumbas, right? You got to have to move some money out to bring him in. But yeah, 5.4. Hmm. But he is a right side D. Um, a couple other names I know we've talked about before. Um, Cernak and Foot out of Tampa. I think Foot could be a good young right side option uh, as well for the team. Um, Bill, we're, we're getting low on time here, but I, I know that you're a big hoops fan and you're a big, you're a big Spurs fan in, in particular. Now I know your Spurs aren't left. Um, and I look, I got to admit, I'm, I'm a very kind of casual NBA fan. So I'm, I know you guys are will probably school me here. So I'm going to turn the mic more over to you guys here, but I have been following the NBA play NBA playoffs this year with a lot more interest than usual because it's different teams this year. Like we're seeing teams that like, well, the Clippers are a great example right never gotten to a final four before and it's great to see milwaukee going deep and it's not just the same old teams on the time but final four right now bill who are you liking to go through to the finals man if you if you asked me before the playoffs started and told me that these would be the final four teams without injuries i'd i probably pick the clippers because of um because Kawhi's on the team again no injuries but I mean, with Kawhi out, I don't think the Clippers are going to win. It's obviously being down 2-0 again. But this time it's different because CP3 is coming back. Kawhi's injured. And, and this Phoenix team just seems destined to at least make the finals, if not win at all. I think the finals are going to be Phoenix and M- Milwaukee. And it seems insane. But if I had to pick a team, I think I'd go with the Suns right now. Like, I, I want to say the Bucks. But I just don't trust them. I just don't trust their offense. They just they just look lost in the half court so many on so many possessions. And Phoenix is just so well coached by Monty Williams. They have such good chemistry. So I I do think I have to go with the Suns. It it's insane. I mean, like if I told anyone that the Suns would win the NBA title like a year ago, they they call me crazy. So what do you guys think? Well, if you remember last year, there was the play in to get into the bubble and the Suns went eight. No, I yeah. believe it was eight. No. And they still yeah. lost, and they still didn't get in the bubble. Right. Um, so the Suns were kind of on this upwards trajectory going in from last year. And then they finished what second or third in the conference, I believe in the Western conference. Shout out mm-hmm. to Terry guest. He corrected me because uh, I, I thought they were, yeah, they I know were they were second. the underdog. They were second. They, they were yeah, second. Know- the nuggets, the nuggets were third. Yeah. yeah, but I know they were the underdog in the Lakers series, so I just assumed the Lakers were uh, a top three in the West, but it was actually Phoenix, but it was the first time Terry said that uh, someone actually was on the seventh seed was the favorite against the second seed. Yeah. But going back to that, I, I agree with you. I think if you look at the teams that are left and how they're constructed, I think top to bottom, the Suns have the, the most depth at all positions. Uh, they're the, probably the best coach team. I love the Bucks. I have a couple of friends who are from Milwaukee. Uh, I love Giannis. I think a lot of people owe Giannis an apology after going into that first few games against the Nets and people were saying he's not an MVP and what are they doing? I do 
pull my hair out watching the Bucks play from time to time and just watching them try thinking that they're the Golden State Warriors, that they can just jack threes. I'm like, guys, like you got one of the premier power players in the league in Giannis. You know, why don't you use him down low on the post? I mean, no one can stop him. You know, I mean, he's not quite Shaq level, but he's, you know, if he gets the ball in that position, you're not going to be able to stop him. I think the Suns are extremely fun to watch. Devin Booker is a young superstar. DeAndre Ayton, who, you know, you look back at that draft, that was the same draft that Luka Doncic went. Um, man, I forget the kid in Atlanta right now that's shooting the lights out. Uh, Trey Young. Trey Young. You know, yeah. he was in that draft as well. Ayton went first. And, you know, at first you're like, man, Doncic would look really good in a Suns uniform. Trey Young would look really good in a Suns uniform. But actually... Aiton has been unbelievable. He he's given me almost Ben Wallace vibes is that like big defensive presence in, in the middle who can, you know, block shots. And he made that an unbelievable alley-oop uh, field goal with what less than a second left to give them the, the, the lead and take the two nothing lead against the Clippers. So I'm with you, Bill. I, I think it's the sun's championship to lose right now. Yeah. And I'm actually rooting for the bucks because, because I like Giannis as well. I think Giannis is probably the most likable superstar in the league right now and, and maybe one of the most likable superstars in recent history because he's, I mean, are you guys familiar with his backstory? A little, but uh, you can give us the Coles notes as well. Well, uh, I think he was raised in Greece, obviously, but he was almost homeless till like the age of 10, 11, like, like when, when he was just starting um, to become a teenager and like he sold bracelets on the streets and stuff and and to get from that point to where he is right now it's just unbelievable you know like lots of NBA players have great stories but I think Giannis is, is even more of an outlier in terms of just how far he's made so I, I just think the guy's awesome on the court and off the court and, and I just want him to win but I just don't I don't think the Bucks can be trusted even after beating the Nets because the Nets only had KD right I mean, Harden got injured 17 seconds into game one. Kyrie went down in uh, game four, I think. And then they almost still got beat by basically KD and, and Harden playing on fumes. So I, I just don't trust the Bucks. And again, honestly, this Eastern Conference Finals, I don't think the Hawks are going to be a, a pushover. Like, like the Sixers combusted. I think the reason the Sixers lost well, I think the Hawks won mo- more because of what the Sixers did and not them. Um, apologies to Hawks fans. But <laughs> I do think the Eastern Conference Finals is going to be – it's not going to be a short series. Like, I think the Bucks are going to take it in six. I don't think it's going to be a sweep or a five-game series. But I just think that the Suns, especially with CP3 coming back, are just so well-coached and they have so much chemistry – that their offense is probably going to outproduce Milwaukee, even though Giannis is definitely going to be the best player in the series if the Suns and the Bucks make it to the finals. I know they're not in the final four, but just touching on the Sixers, do you think Ben Simmons gets traded? Yeah. Yeah, I I do think he gets traded, but I, I just don't know. Like His, his value is at an all-time low right now, obviously. But I don't think it's as low as maybe fans think it is because like fans are pretty reactionary myself included, of course. Um, but I just feel like as time goes on, the, the GMs of the other teams are going to not forget, but kind of move past his playoff performance and see the upside that he brings. And dude, this, this guy is 
six ten, two forty. He he can he's he's a great passer. He's he's a menace in transition, and he's just got all the tools physically at least to be one of the top players in the league. But it's just the mental side, you know. Like there, there's been rumors that he doesn't work as hard, and he he obviously shrunk in the moment in the fourth quarter, as we all saw, right? Passing away a, a an easy dunk. I mean, they did have Trey Young, who's who's known to be such a great rim protector, right there, right? So I mean, you can't really <laughs> fault him for <laughs> for, uh, for for passing that up. But again, I I feel like Simmons is gone. But he's probably going to net the Sixers more than most people think. Um, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think with Simmons, I think we've been talking about the biggest flaw in his game for, what, three years now. He doesn't have a shot. He doesn't have a jump shot. And he doesn't work on it. You know what I mean? You never see the guy work on a shot. I mean, LeBron, when he first came into the league, he was a bull. He would just drive to the basket. And then he developed a jump shot. Kobe was another guy who obviously would love to drive and, you know, do the beautiful layups and dunks. And he developed a jump shot. And you haven't seen, you mentioned it, Bill. He hasn't put the work in. He hasn't put the work in to actually work on his jump shot. And then he does seem to kind of freeze up in the moment and not want to take those shots. Uh, going back just really quickly to the Giannis thing, I think one of the other reasons why he's so favorably liked amongst a lot of the NBA fan base is he did sign an extension to stay in a small market team like Milwaukee. And I think, you, yeah, and I think you see so many of these superstars jump ship. I mean, we saw it with the Raptors, love them or hate them, but Vince Carter, Tracy McGrady, obviously in Cleveland with LeBron leaving the first time to go to Miami, you know what I mean? And it's nice to see a small franchise be able to hold on to their stars. I mean, KD left OKC and then shortly thereafter Harden, well, Harden left first, then KD, and then eventually Westbrook. So I do see that. I think that's one of the reasons why so many people love Dame Lillard. He's a guy that, you know, has up to this point, who knows what will happen, has committed to Portland. And I could see the Blazers adding a player like Ben Simmons. I think he, his role on a team like the Blazers could actually be very helpful to them and to him. Cause I don't think he would be relied on to be a goal score to a, sorry, a score. He'd be almost more like a, like a Lorenzo ball kind of player there I think where he's more of a setup guy and you're not relying him to get you 20 and eight a night yeah and uh, for me I I mean Philly's a savage sports town and if you look at their media yeah. the last couple of days uh Ben Simmons I, I think he's gone I mean I, I don't know if you guys saw his fourth quarter stats line in that series uh it was I don't think he got any points I it just he just he just wasn't shooting the ball it was it was it was actually hard to watch uh who has from, credit from, though um, he, he didn't miss a single shot in the fourth, but that's only, but that's only cause he took three <laughs> shots. So yeah, hundred percent, right? Yeah. Hey, so. And Doug, I'm a Lillard fan as well. And you're right. Maybe he, he gets a little bit of jam to go with his bread over there. And maybe Simmons, uh, goes there. That, that actually could be, uh, a pretty decent fit. Um, Bill, we are just about out of time there. Uh, thanks again for joining us. I wanted to hand it over to you here. Um, just uh, tell us what you got going on right now. What's in the works? Yeah, uh, right now I'm mostly focusing on writing for Canucks Army and Pounding the Rock. Um, I haven't written as much as I want to, <laughs> to be honest. So I'm trying to increase my output. But I uh, just keep an eye on, on out for both places. I'm probably going to be dropping an article soon at both sites within the coming days. And I'm also on Point Shot Hockey with Sean and Malcolm 
uh, we usually record on Fridays and Saturdays. So that's also when episodes are usually posted. So yeah, those are the three main places you can find me at. And just want to thank you, Boris, again for having me on. It's been a blast. Yeah, thanks again, man. It's been really good. Um, and just want to give this kind of a Ron McLean wrap up. Actually, Doug, I'll let you go first. I want to get, I got a little Ron McLean style thing here that you guys can probably cringe at uh, for the ending here. Uh, yeah, no, thanks for coming on, Bill. We appreciate you taking the time. I know time is valuable for everybody at the moment. So thanks for spending, you know, 30 minutes with Pete and I this week, and we'd love to have you back on in the future. Yeah, I'd love so- to come back on. So we started with the Fraser Valley. We go to the Phoenix Valley to finish things off. And also 1993, uh, both the Montreal Canadiens and the Phoenix Suns made it to the finals that year as well. So a couple of, a couple of tie-ins for you guys there. Bill, thanks again. Say hi to the guys at Point Shot as well for us. And uh, we'll see you in the Twitter sphere. Awesome. Thanks, guys. It's that time of the episode for the free pour open floor segment. And I'm going to bring up a topic that you actually brought up. I don't know if it was the last episode, Pete, or the previous episode, but you talked about the this food truck in Vancouver called Top Rope Birria and the Birria Tacos. Well, to the audience out there, uh, Pete and I and a colleague of ours uh, and friend, uh, Matt, we met up last weekend uh, at Main Street Brewery, and the Top Rope Birria Taco Truck happened to be there. And I have to let everybody know, Pete, you were not overhyping them one bit. They were absolutely astounding. If you're going to get them, I highly recommend what the guy at the truck told me. Uh, get the Andre, which is the cheese skirt along with the kimchi. $2 for the cheese skirt, $2 for the ad of the kimchi well worth it look them up on instagram i'm not an instagram guy but hey i definitely look them up top rope birria they're maybe in your neck of the woods this coming weekend and it's well worth the wait and the trip yeah i think on uh instagram they're top rope yvr and uh, i i'd just like to say one thing you said they just happened to be there no we we planned that we we planned on going there that's true. We did plan to go there because of that. And also, obviously, to break bread with you and our friend Matt and have a couple of beers. But the Birria tacos were definitely the the reason we wanted to go there. Yeah, and how nice is it that uh, we can start to do things like that again? That, that, was, that was great, just sitting outside in the patio eating tacos and beer. And mine topic for the week it's kind of uh food related as well well i guess it is but i'm gonna talk about my garden so like i've I've got an apartment and so i've got uh you know limited space to work with but uh earlier this spring i made a planter with uh well i helped make a planter with a friend he basically told me what to do and i got a whole bunch of stuff in there right now zucchini chilies and tomatoes uh and they are just going nuts with this weather really curious to see what this heat wave does to it but uh, I've got uh, the best looking garden I've ever had on my deck right now. So shout out to you, tomato plants. First time I've ever given a shout out to vegetables, I think, on this podcast.
Thanks for tuning in, folks, to episode 79. And thanks again to Bill Juan for joining us there. Once again, his Twitter handle, Bill underscore Juan. That was a, a great little chat that we had there. And also, uh, just uh, make, got to make a, a little bit of a correction to something that we talked about earlier. Uh, we When we started recording... This game was scoreless in New York, but since then it's uh, become 2-1 Islander, or sorry, 2-1 Lightning after two. I was just looking at an Islander highlight there, and Braden Point scored again. So that's a nine-game playoff goal scoring streak. I know we talked about Braden Point a lot on this, but uh, just a quick little amendment to something we said earlier. Yeah, he's one-off tying the record, which is held by Reggie Leach, I believe, for of 10 consecutive games with a goal in the playoffs. Phenomenal. I mean, the guy is a big-time player, and produces in big moments. And once again, just a congrats to the Sedins. I'm stoked to have them in the organization again. Really looking forward to seeing what this next chapter is in their careers and for the team. Yeah, I mean, I think the writing is on the wall for Jim Benning here. I mean, who knows how long the transition will take, but I think... It's looking likely that the Sedins at some point will be taking more of an executive role. Today was, you know, very by the numbers. There wasn't a lot revealed. They're just special associates or special assistants to the GM. But I think, yeah, like I said, the writing is on the wall that one day they will be taking over this franchise at the executive level. Perhaps one will be the GM, one will be the president. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited for the future of the Canucks. You know, I, I hope this doesn't tarnish their legacy as players i don't think it will but obviously there was a little bit of that we uh we discussed with bill uh with linden so yeah you know that's a little bit worrisome but yeah you know what i think it's a good day overall for the Canucks franchise you can follow us on twitter i'm at pete underscore gas and check out the playlist that we have on spotify this track is going to be added on to it it's the Canucks speakeasy outro playlist Give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Speak. As always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego.